everybody. I'm really glad that you're here. What we're doing is taking in the second week in this series on the Old Testament. So before we get into this whole issue of the Old Testament and sexuality, let's pause and we'll pray. We'll ask for God's help. God, um, we are surrounded in a culture of all sorts of different voices, and uh, among them is the voice uh, of the Holy Spirit, who is calling us to a higher way. I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to find your voice also in this book, which for many of us can be so confusing. So, Lord, give us your mind on your word, and we will thank you and ask you to help us live in its pages. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, this is interesting. On November 17 this year, a massive new museum is opening in Washington, D.C., which is the home of great museums, right? A a a 430,000-square-foot state-of-the-art museum. It cost $500 million to build. It's going to have breathtaking exhibits, high-tech LED displays, tons of ancient artifacts, and, and precious manuscripts. So what is this museum? that this month is going to take its place alongside such iconic things as uh, the Smithsonian, the Museum of American History, the National Air and Space Museum, the National Postal Museum. I mean, there's a million museums in D.C. It is the Museum of the Bible. So this is sort of ironic. At exactly the time that a museum is dedicated, that a museum comes along dedicated to the Bible is exactly the moment in American history when increasing amounts of us qualify as skeptics of the Bible. In fact, they did a poll in 2011 and it said uh, it came back 10% of Americans, so one in 10, would consider themselves to be Bible skeptics. That is to say that they consider the Bible uninspired, untrue, and irrelevant. They took the same, said 10%. They took the same poll five years later in 2016. And the number had more than doubled. It was now 22% of everybody said that they consider the Bible uninspired, untrue, and irrelevant. Worse than that, if you were under 30 years of age, chances are one in three that you would say yes to the following statement. The Bible is a dangerous book of religious dogma used for centuries to oppress people. One in three. And maybe that describes your view of the Bible here today, or perhaps maybe someone you know, someone in the lunchroom. Increasingly, we are Bible skeptics. And so it's an area of deep relevance today when we talk about the Bible and sexuality, an area where people think that the Bible is used to oppress people. Well, maybe it shouldn't surprise us that in a time when people's Bible illiteracy is really at an all-time high, at least in the Christian West, when our illiteracy is at an all-time high, that people accept uncritically the following I, I set of ideas. That the Old Testament is misogynistic. That the Old Testament considers women of lesser value than men. That the Old Testament encourages rape. That the Old Testament uh, celebrates polygamy, which we'll look at in depth today. And people will throw this out there. In fact, remember when the, when the marriage debates raged through the culture wars and people said, well, it really seems hypocritical that Christians are trumpeting the value of, quote, traditional marriage when their holy book doesn't seem to have any consistent sexual ethic whatsoever. It's all over the map. So uh, let's get to it, shall we? And when we open up this troublesome testament and we look at its view of sexuality, what's very interesting and maybe surprising is that on the first pages of the Old Testament, we see the mutuality and equality of men and women put forward in stunning ways. So let's get to it, shall we? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Old Testament says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, 
And so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So we see here in the Old Testament that God created men and women equal along three different vectors. Number one, in terms of value. So both men and women are made in God's image. So both special. Special creations in the animal kingdom. Here, this special animal made in the image of God. Now, both, interestingly, both masculinity and femininity, both male and female, reflect, that is, image God in the world that God made. So both of equal value. Both equal in relationship. So both male and female have relationship with the Creator. Both know God. Both walk with God. Both then are priests in the temple of the Garden of Eden. They're both equal in purpose too. Notice that the command to rule and subdue the earth given both equally to men and women. So both male and female have been given meaningful labor by God to spread God to the world. It keeps going in the complementary account in the next chapter. Genesis chapter 2 has the, the more detail of the creation of Adam and Eve. And in 2 verse 18, then the Lord God said, It is, no, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is like him. And so here we see the sexes are made not just for sort of cold and utilitarian procreation. The sexes have been made complementary that there might be companionship. Beautiful. And by the way, that designation of Eve as a helper suited to the needs of Adam, that's in no way a denigration. That is not a designation of inferior status. That same word helper is used of God. God is the helper of Israel. So it's certainly not a designation of inferiority. Genesis chapter 2, we keep going in the same narrative. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, and then he waxes poetic, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So the formation of woman out of man speaks, again, an incredible message of mutuality and equality. For, for starters, she, is, she comes out of him, and that's significant to him. He goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is essentially the same thing. In fact, this confirms God's promise. I will make one like him. And now think about this. She's taken from his rib. What is this communicating to us? If she's taken from his head, she will rule him. She's taken from his foot, he will trample on her. She's taken from his rib that they might walk side by side and they might share mutually in the command to rule and subdue and care for God's good earth. So this is fascinating, friends. Here's their one. They're split into two, and then they come together again in marriage. And God himself presents the bride to the groom and so establishes marriage. This is what a marriage is. It is a permanent bonding of two complementary imagers, one flesh. And so sexually they fit, and they have no shame, only trusting, vulnerability, and self-giving. Wow. I mean, it's just awesome. It is an incredibly beautiful picture of sexuality. 
complementarity and uh, community. This, friends, this is God's ideal sexual order. And it's the first thing in the Old Testament. It's the first thing the Old Testament has to say about sex and gender. And you fast forward the tape to Jesus, and whenever Jesus talks about marriage, whenever he talks about sex and gender, he goes back to this. When Paul the Apostle set rules for the young church and give letters to the churches talking about sex and gender and marriage, he will go back to this. They will all hearken back to God's original beautiful creation design. That's wonderful. Uh, But then our original parents fall into sin. And this plunges them and their world into chaos. And it mars God's beautiful design. It's like you have a beautiful Michelangelo and somebody takes a Sharpie to it and just scratches graffiti all over the top of it. Yeah, you can still see the beauty. There it is underneath. But on top, there's the scratching and the marring and the brilliance and the beauty is uh, distorted. Now, not surprisingly then, our brokenness mars everything, including sex. And so a curse falls on us and we've been living under its influence ever since. And it will be described in Genesis 3, verse 16, where God said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will dominate you. Now here's something new. Here's something that we didn't see in chapter one and chapter two. Here's something that wasn't there in the garden. Domination. That is incredibly important. Before sin, between the sexes, what was it? We saw it was community, it was mutuality, it was complementarity, and it was nakedness without shame or fear. So the Bible teaches that man's domination of woman is not revealing God's like, divi- divine order, but rather God's predicting how the curse of sin and rebellion would play itself out. And that's exactly how it did play out. So uh, now the author of Genesis is going to take you on a little trip. And so if you read Genesis from chapter 1 all the way to the last, and you should do this. Get into this, friends. These are, these are the seismic texts of our world. You should know them. And here you're going to find the author takes you on a journey where we've gone through God's creative handiwork where it's all pronounced very good, and then the fall, and now the tour bus leaves Eden. And the fact that the scenery from here on out gets decidedly ugly is showing you just how far and how fast the human race could fall. So since the fall specifically junked up the relationship between the sexes, it shouldn't surprise you that the very next thing we read is about a little guy named Lamech. Right outside the Garden of Eden in chapter 4 now, verse 19. Lamech took two wives for himself. So Lamech has the distinction of being the first polygamist. Now when you read this, and you read it in the Bible, God's book, what you shouldn't do is say, well, it's a story in the Bible. I should do what it's in there. (laughs) Right? Some people read the Bible in such a wooden, and and some of the the harshest skeptics of the Bible read it in such a fundamentalist sort of wooden way. Their interpretive grid is so uh, immature. When it's in there, it's not for us to say, well, this is exactly how we should... um, uh, we should, uh, what we should do. Um, this is a picture of an arrogant man. This is a picture of a vengeful man, a, a man who carries out vengeance killings, a murderer and the grandson of a murderer, Cain. So are you seeing a trajectory here? It continues in the same direction. If you keep reading the book of Genesis, it will be described for you in graphic detail. This is not a children's book. 
I mean, children learn the stories in here, but we shield them from the roughest parts of what you hear about the degradation of the human race described in the Bible. Violence, prostitution, incest, homosexuality, slavery, polygamy, patriarchy. And the Bible doesn't shield you from this. This is how bad it gets. All these things are degradations. They are sinful behaviors because they do not conform to God's creation ideal. So just telling the stories is not condoning the behaviors within. There is a difference in the Bible, and you must understand this to understand it right. There's a difference between what is being prescribed and what is being described. Okay, you say, I get that, Rick. That seems sane. But didn't God's heroes, the people that the Bible celebrates, didn't they come along and do some of these very things, including polygamy, which we'll talk about? Doesn't, in fact, God's law contain uh, uh, items concerning polygamy and patriarchy? And isn't that in there? It is. And those are good questions. So let's begin, and we will talk about uh, the examples of Abraham and others and polygamy. First, an illustration. How many of you believe that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves? So most of you. Good. So our education system is working. All right, so, uh, so do you think that him having slaves contradicts or in some way or certainly contradicts does does it nullify the beauty and the truth of what he wrote in the declaration of independence where all men were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and among them life liberty and the pursuit of happiness is that nullified by the fact that thomas jefferson owned slaves i don't think so i mean certainly there has to be some conflict going on in his own mind and all this and what does that mean all men and who's a man and who's not a man but does it nullify the beauty of what's being said there i don't think so i'll give you another example how many of you believe that martin luther king jr had extramarital affairs all right it looks pretty strongly that he did so uh do you think that those relationships mean that he was wrong when he said that people should not be judged based on the color of their skin but rather by the content of their character. Does the one nullify the other? And if you can begin to get inside what I'm saying here, friends, then maybe you can understand that prominent Old Testament figures did not walk out God's beautiful sexual design, and that does not nullify the fact that they were examples of faith and that to us they have important lessons about God and what he's doing in redemption history through them. It doesn't overturn the monogamy ideal of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It doesn't overturn their faith in God. It doesn't overturn the lessons their stories teach us about God. But then you say, well, wait a minute, Rick. I get that. But, but we, I've read the story. God's silent about their polygamous choices. Why doesn't God rebuke Abraham for taking Hagar as a second wife when Sarah is uh, found uh, barren and unable to conceive in Genesis chapter 16? Well, let's begin to understand this, shall we? First, by the time of Abraham, polygamy has been practiced in human cultures for thousands of years. In every human culture since the fall. In other words, it's universal. Everybody does. It's like slavery. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit next week. It's every human culture practices polygamy. And there were cultural conditions, friends, that called for it, that in some sense demanded it. And so it wasn't like Abraham invented this. 
This is a common practice in the ancient Near East to build your household through a slave wife if your first wife was found to be barren. You say, that's crazy, man. I mean, we just can't get inside why they would do that, why godly people would even, that why the idea would even enter their minds. That's because you can't climb inside a completely different cultural context. If it seems crazy to you, it's only because you don't understand how incredibly important it was to have children in the ancient world. There was no government safety net in the ancient Near East, okay? No government safety net. The ch- if you uh, didn't have children, you sacrificed your retirement fund. You didn't have security guards. You had no fire department. They were your food security. They were your medical insurance, all wrapped up in one. Now, let's say your wife isn't having children. She's found to be barren. You don't know who's at fault. It's you or her, probably. They would assume it's the woman always. And uh, so she's barren. Now you can see how this will be a tragedy. Then it will be a tragedy not just for the husband, this is a tragedy for the wife. And that explains why whenever a barren woman shows up in ancient Near East culture in the scripture, it is the woman who anguishes in travail that she has failed her family because she knows what's at stake. She can't provide children. That affects her future security, her future retirement, her family's prosperity in the world. It's a tragedy for them. And that maybe also explains then why it's Sarah's idea to bring a slave girl to Abraham as a second wife. Not Abraham's idea, that's Sarah's idea. How would you like to live your life without any of those securities? Now, I'm not saying it was right. I'm not saying that at all. I'm trying to get us to climb inside the cultural realities. I'm saying that polygamy, the need for it, was felt in the ancient world deeply. Did you know this? Geneticists um, uh, speculate that in the ancient world, 17 women reproduced for every one man. You go, what? Why would that be? Well, it was a bad world to be a man. You say it was a bad world to be a woman. They were so oppressed. It was, a bad, it was just a bad world. Now listen, okay, men would have died more in childbirth. They are more vulnerable even in our day, but that mitigate, that's mitigated by, by modern uh, advances in medicine. But male babies are more vulnerable. And of course you have males dying rampantly in the constant warfare. Every year your tribe would probably go to war and young men would be killed in your tribe. And then physical labor. Men would be, you know, there was no OSHA, okay? So men would, would, would die all the time in physical labor and in slavery. Yes, women were also enslaved, but they were enslaved often for reproduction and they wouldn't be enslaved to die or to be worked to death. They would be enslaved to reproduce. Men would be enslaved to be worked and often to death. So the need for polygamy was felt deeply and therefore it was normal. Now, if you think you still can't get your mind around that, think about our cultural moment we have our own cultural pressures which is also defining our own marriage normality so in our culture we feel a deep need for homosexual marriage to be normal to be normalized why because of a whole different set of cultural uh, pressures among them the value of unrestricted sexual self-expression homosexual marriage would seem as crazy to abraham as polygamous marriage seems to you Changing cultural conditions make certain forms of marriage more palatable at certain times. The question is this. Is there a sexual design that is morally right no matter the cultural conditions that favor this model or that model? Now, if you say, well, you know, 
changing sexual mores should be fluid and morality should just evolve with the new cultural conditions. If that's what you're saying, then why are you up in arms about Abraham? Why are you looking down your nose at polygamy? On what basis do you criticize patriarchy? On what basis is this oppression? It's just what their cultural moment demanded, just like this is what our cultural moment demands. See, the religious relativist gets himself in a pickle here. They talk about how different cultures have different sexual mores and no one is more right than another. But if a culture happens to have a sexual practice that you, as a progressive Western secularist, don't like... Let, let's say like female circumcision, then suddenly it's bad, it's wrong, with a capital W. Suddenly there is such a thing as sexual ethics that transcend time and place. <laughs> well, if that's you, just drop the hypocrisy and join the Christian who has always believed that there is an objective set of moral and sexual ethics that transcend time and place and speak to us with a timeless authority And we think that the only place you can lodge such things objectively is with a lawgiver, and that has to come from God, a God who designed us sexually and in other ways, morally. And so that design, whatever it is, would apply regardless of temporary conditions, like let's say a shortage of males, or let's say a barren female, Abraham's time, or let's say an overemphasis on the value of sexual self-expression, our time. Those are cultural pressures, but is there a design that speaks above those designs or above those cultural pressures? See, friends, biblical marriage is not founded on desire. It is founded on design. And I know this is deeply unpopular in our day, but listen, this is not irrational. The Christian looks at nature and says, here is a design, a mutuality, yes, for procreation, but inside of this, if we believe there's a God behind nature in some way, is it irrational to say that this God has some design in the mutuality and complementarity of male and female, that it should be this way, and that a child being made by one man and one woman, all other things being equal, it ought to be the design that that child is raised by that man and that woman which bring that child into being. This is design, and it's beautiful, and all other things being equal. It is uh, God's way that the, the human uh, family should, should be formed. So nowhere do you find God commanding Abraham to get another wife. And by the way, the rejection of the child of Hagar, the slave wife, as the child of the promise, should have been their first clue. But why is God silent? Because he doesn't say, don't do that. Well, I'll just submit this, friends, that God has bigger fish to fry. You say, well, what could be more important than releasing women from the oppression of polygamy? Read this story. The only oppression Sarah seems to feel in this particular moment is her own barrenness. That's the oppression that she feels is that she is barren. So listen, friends, besides that, the fall cannot be reversed in a day. The fall will not be reversed in a day. If God is turning the titanic of human depravity and sin and the brutality of the fall he must begin where he begins he begins small he begins with one man he begins with this polygamous man abraham and he will be the father of all those who live by faith and he plucks him out of a context out of the ancient near east And he calls him to be a blessing to all nations and through him to eventually bring in the Christ 
who will bring us back to God's creation ideal and lift high the value of both women and marriage in a way that both that culture and this culture disdain. Okay, you say, I can see that, but uh, then Moses comes along and he gives the law. I mean, straight from thundering down from Sinai, man. And surely that's God's time to really spell out the way he wants marriage and sex to go. Why doesn't he do it there in the law? Well, he does. And here's instruction to kings. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Maybe you never read this before, but when Moses is talking about future kings, he, say, he says, neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart not turn away. That's in the law. Don't multiply wives. That's in the law. You say, well, wait a minute. Kings, I mean, golly, King David, I think he collected four wives and I'm pretty sure that his son Solomon 1,000 wives. How did they do that if that's in the law? They disobeyed. I mean, they disobeyed. Have you read the story? David diso- that wasn't the only thing David disobeyed about. I think, you know, if you list the Ten Commandments, he might have just gone down the list and checked them all off at some point. So David disobeyed. In fact, in the Old Testament, it denounces Solomon's kingship. You say, no, Solomon is the greatest of all the kings. No, you, you need to read it. The author of Kings slyly denounces Solomon because the author of Kings clearly knows the Mosaic prescriptions for kings. And as he goes about listing Solomon's accomplishments, he makes covenant with Egypt and he marries uh, Pharaoh's daughter and he acquires great amounts of gold and he multiplies wives. And you start realizing, wait a minute, this isn't a list of his accomplishments. This is a list of his failures. It's a list of his failures. So beyond the rules for kings, it actually looks like Moses also made monogamy standard for everybody. Leviticus 18, verse 18, a misunderstood verse by many. And I'm reading it now in the American Standard Version. It's a little clunky, but I'll tell you why. And thou shalt not take a wife to her sister to be a rival to her to uncover her nakedness because the other, uh, besides the other in her lifetime. Now, it looks on the surface that this is forbidding a, kind of, a special kind of polygamy where you would marry a woman and her sister, which does seem to be a special kind of torture. So, um, but, uh, but Dr. Paul Copen, and by the way, this is found in a book, an excellent book on these issues. So if you're really struggling with the Old Testament, get this book. The book is called, Is God a Moral Monster? Okay, and so he goes into all this stuff, and Dr. Paul Copen says that the ASV has this correct. It, it renders the Hebrew best. A wife to her sister. Do not take a wife to her sister. A really interesting way of phrasing it, which is actually idiom in the Hebrew for do not take one in addition to another. We know this because the same idiom, the, the same phrase is flipped in gender, and sometimes it's said do not take one man in addition to his brother, and it doesn't mean his literal brother. It just means a man in addition to another. And so that what, what it's really saying, Paul Copen says, is that the verse should be understood to say, you shall not take a wife in addition to another to be a rival to her. And you say, well, really? Is that how it should be taken? That's how the Jews often took it. In fact, the Qumran community, which was the most incredibly zealous group of uh, Jews around the time of Jesus who wanted to obey every letter of mosaic law forbade polygamy because of leviticus 18 18 but if moses forbids polygamy then you say well why does he give other laws that talk about polygamy i'll give you two examples exodus 21 verse 7 if a man marries another woman he must not deprive the first one of her food clothing and marital rights 
I'll give you another one, same chapter, or sorry, uh, different uh, book. Deuteronomy 21, verse 15. If a man who has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, he is not to show favoritism. Now, those regulations are not meant to condone polygamy. See, polygamy, remember, is a pre-existing condition. It is a universal condition in the ancient Near East. The law comes and applies its transcendent moral codes of goodness and truth and beauty and fairness onto this pre-existing condition. So these are examples of case law. And case law begins with hypothetical scenarios onto which the principles of the law are then applied. It's the principles that are transcendent and carry forward for all time. But the temporal issues are not God-sanctioned. So for example, one will begin like this. If a man has two wives, that is not an ideal condition or a sanctioned condition. Another law will say, if two men are quarreling, that is not a sanctioned condition. That's not a condition that God wants. If a man's ox gores his neighbor, this is not a, a, a sanctioned condition by God. It's just a, a pre-existing condition onto which the law's principles of moral fairness and goodness will be applied. And so, in the first case, you see if a man takes another wife, all wives must be given adequate food and clothing. The Bible's taking care of the first wife if another wife comes along that might supplant her in importance. Similarly in Deuteronomy, if the, in the second case, if you are, not, you are not allowed to show favoritism if you have multiple wives and you favor one over the other. The transcendent principle here is what? Fairness, goodness, and protection of the vulnerable because of the imperfections of the pre-existing condition of polygamy. So far from approving of polygamy, the law of Moses always seems to be taming it, limiting its abuses, protecting the potential victims, and discouraging anyone who chooses it by making it really expensive or difficult. Now there's other examples, but here's what we found. Let's sum up. We have the ideal. It's the first thing you read right out of the chute. Genesis 2.24, mutuality, complementarity, heterosexual monogamy, design specifications. Leviticus 18.18 expresses strong disapproval for polygamy even if this law wasn't followed, yes, even by heroes of the faith like David. The biblical writers implicitly condemn polygamy also if we read between the lines because from Abraham to Esau, from Jacob to David and Solomon, wherever you see God's ideal of, of monogamy being uh, not lived out, you see attendant with that the unvarnished truth of what happens in polygamous homes. Competition, strife, disharmony, and unbelievable pain. And the Bible authors will not spare you the graphic descriptions of what happens in imperfect sexual arrangements. Where the law touches on polygamy, it always makes it harder by protecting its potential victims. That's what we find. That's the Old Testament. Now, let me wrap up by kind of bringing this to the present. We've all seen these statue protests lately, right? When people want to get rid of statues that are offensive. It's like there's an anti-statue crusade going on. I know we probably have opinions that are diverse in the room this morning, but some of you, I'm sure, have wondered, where could this possibly land? I mean, what are we going to do? Are we going to get rid of statues of Abraham Lincoln? Uh, answer, Yes. Uh, recently, in a group of college students, uh, a, a group of college students in Wisconsin protested and defaced a statue of Abraham Lincoln. You say, "No, not Abe." Yeah, 
And, and so you say, well, why? Well, one of the organizers was interviewed, and they asked, why are you protesting Abraham Lincoln? They said, well, everyone thinks of Abraham as this great, you know, president, but let's be real. He owned slaves, and as a native, we want people to know that he ordered the execution of native men. Well, Wisconsin might have to revise their public school curriculum because that is false. Uh, Lincoln grew up in poverty in Illinois and never owned slaves. There's no record ever of Lincoln owning slaves. In fact, in his recorded debates with Stephen Douglas, that's one of the reasons we are inspired by seeing how slavery is a fundamental violation of the American creed, right? Now, in fairness to the protesters, it's true that American soldiers did execute Sioux Indians while Lincoln was president. What happened? What happened was that the Indians rebelled in a bloody uprising because the United States government failed to pay for their land in an agreed-upon barter. And their, their people were starving as a result of the neglect of uh, the failure of follow-through. So there was a bloody uprising and a revolt. 300 of the, of the uh, ringleaders were sentenced to death, but Lincoln pardoned all but 38 of the worst offenders who were said to be guilty of murder and rape. And it was the biggest public hanging in American history, and it was a horrible moment. But it could have been a lot worse for, except for Lincoln's compassion. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because it parallels our attitudes about the Old Testament and sex. We make criticisms from over here in our comfy chair. And over here where we have these morally superior condemnations of our forebears. But like the Lincoln protesters, often these criticisms are from deep ignorance. And if we looked into it, the facts would make our critique ring hollow or maybe even downright slanderous. Friends, listen, it is just so ironic about our critique, what, are, what is so ironic about our critique of the Bible's sexual ethic and its role models, including the polygamists, like Abraham and like David. What's so ironic is that it's this very Old Testament that has given us the marriage model that's been the foundation for our society for hundreds, yes, thousands of years. The Old Testament, we have God's beautiful idea of mutuality, complementarity, equality, and monogamy. In the Old Testament, we have God beginning to end the authoritarian, brutal, sexually abusive, and unhealthy ways of humans under the temporary stewardship of the law, which is not an expression of God's ideal order. It is an expression of God's um, transcendent moral um, principles applied to temporal, pre-existing, sinful conditions. And maybe it seems that the fact that there's even any mention of it in the law seems like God's condoning it. No. It's actually the beginning of God ending it. And now, how do you know that, Rick? Well, when you get to the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, here's Jesus, and he comes along, and most clearly of all, he spells out God's transcendent and beautiful and true and good ideal. One man, one woman, for life. And so Jesus elevated the value and the status of women. He shocked his disciples by speaking to them in public and bringing them into his extended entourage of disciples. And he was supported by wealthy women along in his mission in Palestine. And then he also shocked the Jewish establishment by raising up the value and the transcendent beauty of monogamy, faithful monogamy. And he was speaking to a divorce-happy culture and he shocked his Jewish audience who thought that they could divorce for any and every reason. Jesus said, have you not read? Have you not heard? And you say, what was he referring to? The Old Testament. (laughs) The Old Testament. Because Jesus knew 
what was being taught. What was being taught is that this is God's beautiful design for human flourishing and functioning. And the church then came along and they followed suit and they said loving heterosexual monogamy is the only model we approve as God honoring. This was progressive sex. (laughs) That's what's progressive because it left behind all the other wild iterations of sexual arrangements in the ancient Near East. And why was this, why was this so wildly um, beautiful in the way it conformed to God's plan? Because it ennobles us, it frees us, it fulfills our purpose and design. It reflects the love and commitment and mutuality and servanthood that exists in the very nature of God. And marriage is God reflecting his love to the world. That's what it's meant to be. And every time I marry a man and a woman, they come forward and I say, everybody watch, look at this, this is God. This is a picture, this is the image of God on earth. This is a reflection of love, commitment, loyalty, mutuality, servanthood, self-giving. Look at this, complementarity, community. So friends, our cultural moment is showing you something. Our cultural moment is showing us that all these pious criticisms of the Bible are hollow. Your culture does not know a better way. I mean, haven't you seen that? I mean, at least we should see that in the last couple of months. There is a pandemic of sexual abuse and scandal. You look underneath government and it's right and it's left and it's Republican and it's Democrat and you look underneath Hollywood and all the shiny, beautiful people and what do you find there? You find sexual abuse and chaos and it is a scandal of which we are just scratching the surface, friends. The people who purport to tell you what is right and wrong sex are themselves immersed in sexual chaos. I will not bow to their shame anymore. And when Hollywood will tell me, oh, you are so regressive, really? One man, one woman for life. And I say, you live your chaotic version and we will live our beautiful expression of sexuality here. And as we walk this out faithfully, the one world will look into the other and say, there is a picture of health and beauty and sexual sanity in an insane world. They know no better than Abraham. They know no better than David. Left on our own, ignoring God's clear guidance, pretending there is no such thing as sexual design, We are making a mess of sex. And friends, let's get personal because it's not just Hollywood and it's not just government. It's you. It's me. We have welcomed all sorts of sex abuse and deviancy and brokenness into our lives, haven't we? Pornography is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. And it is breaking us. And now we realize infidelity, adultery is plaguing so many marriages. Some in this room, you know, you know the devastating cost of getting off of God's plan. So now we have two things that are facing us. We have the beautiful design of God's word and we have the sense of conviction because there's not a person in this room, yours truly included, who's ever lived up to it. So what are you gonna do with your shame? Because everybody carries sexual shame. What are you gonna do with your guilt? Friends, this is why there has to be a cross, and this is why we celebrated communion this morning. 
celebrating the love of God for broken people like you, like me, like David, like Solomon, heroes of the faith, men after God's own heart with feet of clay, broken people who desperately needed grace. You read Psalm 51 just one time and you hear the heart of David, a broken man, broken by his sexual uh, problems, by his, by, by his sexual brokenness. And you'll hear a man crying out to God for mercy on him because he has so violated God's creation ideal. And maybe that would be you. And you would feel in your bones the same thing that David would feel. The blessing of a man whose sin is forgiven. Whose iniquity God does not hold against him. And then we would, in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in newness of life. And together, all of us strugglers, we're all struggling with something. Same-sex attraction, infidelity, or pornography, or um, an emotional affair, or marriage problems. Every one of us is struggling with something. And we'll all come together as a band of mutual strugglers, and we'll say, let us walk together in the power of God towards God's, toward, towards God's beautiful ideal that would bless us and ennoble our personhood and strengthen our families and bless our society if lived out broadly. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, make us, make us an oasis of sexual sanity in a sexually insane world. Let me pray for you. God, I ask that when we are faced with temptation to reject this design, that we would not stubbornly say we know better, but we would submit to a wisdom that's higher than our own. We would submit to the one who loves us, to the lover of our soul, who also is the one that we give the right to define what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And despite all desires and inclinations toward the opposite, that we would say, this God is good. We agree with you. And now only, Father, help us to live in it. For we courageously need your power. For we are broken and lost people who struggle. And we know, Lord, that you will provide it in the power of your Holy Spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus. We claim it in his name. Amen.